Friends, it's a joy to be with you this morning. I have the privilege of preaching from God's Word, and and that is a joy for me even as we approach what is a sober subject. And I want you to know that while I stand here, I also sit with you under the ministry of the Word. And I've had the opportunity to ask that the Lord would speak to me this week and asking that He would even speak to me and through me to each one of us this morning. So let's turn to Him now in prayer asking that he would help us in our time together. Father, we do pray that you would speak to us by your word, that you would shape us by it, that you would give us ears to hear, that we would heed your warnings, that we would be helped by your wisdom. We pray, Lord, that we would grow in wisdom and in greater Christ-likeness. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. An axiom. What is an axiom? An axiom is a statement or proposition which is regarded as being established, accepted, or self-evidently true. Self-evidently true. Axioms can be used often in a mathematical sense. Here's a couple examples. Things which are equal to the same thing are also equal to to one another, established, accepted, self-evidently true. Another mathematical example of an axiom, if equals be added to equals, the wholes are equals. While axiom can be used as a mathematical term, it also can be used to refer to daily living, things that are self-evidently true in our daily lives, things that we don't even question any longer, such as the sun rises in the east. We've heard that throughout our lives. We've accepted it. We do not question or challenge that axiom. Another one, Murphy's Law, what can go wrong will go wrong, and sometimes at the worst of times. So what can go wrong will go wrong. This seems to especially ring true the the weeks that I'm preaching. We often talk in my home about there being static on the line. If you're up to preach, there's going to be static on the line. There's going to be difficulty. Things that can go wrong most certainly will go wrong and often at the worst of times. I'm going to take a moment to just briefly speak about something that I love, someone that I love. This will apply later in the passage. But yesterday... Our youngest was playing in the living room, and she fell and met the corner of our coffee table with her left eye. If you see her, it will be self-evidently true that she met the the corner of the coffee table with her left eye. Murphy's Law, things that can go wrong will go wrong at the worst of times. Well, these, these axioms that are widely accepted can be similar to our study in the book of Proverbs. We've been in the book of Proverbs for several weeks now, and in the Proverbs we hear these, not, not promises, not, not guarantees, but things that will generally be the case, that are generally true. And the proverb that we come to this morning, Proverbs 7, seems to be especially true. So this is the 10th fatherly appeal to his son. But it is the the third one, the third one that is referencing adultery. So the last three, we were in Proverbs 5 where Pastor Johnny led us in thinking about adultery from chapter 5. Pastor Dave in Proverbs 6. And now here we are in Proverbs 7. Three different passages, three different pastors, and yet the same message, a message you and I need to hear. So I invite you to turn with me now to Proverbs 7. If you have your Bibles, Proverbs 7, if you do not, there's a pew Bible nearby. You can grab that and turn to page 531, Proverbs 7. I'll give you a moment to turn there, and I'll read the passage in its entirety. Proverbs. 
Proverbs 7. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend. To keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house. In the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come to meet you to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me. And be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. If you're taking notes this morning, here's our main idea from the passage The Father's wisdom will keep you from the forbidden woman. The Father's wisdom will keep you from the forbidden woman. And to unpack this main idea, I'm going to give us two axioms for avoiding adultery. So two axioms, two things that are self-evidently true that help us in avoiding adultery. Axiom number one, keep my words and you will live. Keep her words and you will die. I'm going to break this into part one and part two. Part one, again, keep my words and you will live. Keep my words and you will live. You'll see in the passage that The father speaking to the son in verse 1 says, keep my words. The CSB translates this word keep as obey. Immediately the father gives this call to the son to obey his words. And then in verse 2 he says, keep my commands and live. He's saying my words, my commands will preserve your life. There's a call to obey in verse 1, as well as a caution to obey in verse 2. The Father's words are real to life. They are relevant to your life and mine. And so, along with the Son, you and I do well to listen to the Father. Well, how, how might we do that? Verse 1, the Father says to keep my commands with you. We're to keep the commands of the Father close. We are to keep them in our sight, to keep them in front of our eye as the apple of our, of our eye, something in which we delight. In verse 3, we are to bind them to our fingers as a visual reminder of these commands. 
So keep my words with you, in front of you, in your sight. But also keep them within you. Keep these words, these commands of mine inside you. Verse 3, write them on the tablet of your heart. These words were not merely to be reminded of alone, but actually to be in relationship with them. The Father is saying, make my words your counselor. Make my words your conversation partner. Communicate regularly with me. And that way you will keep my words with you and within you. Then you will treasure them, delight in them. You will desire them more and more and begin to store them up. In this passage, the Father illustrates the very thing that he is instructing. He is keeping wisdom, the words of wisdom, as he teaches them to his Son. What we observe the Father doing here, we've seen him do before, even in Proverbs 7. And it's a a pattern that we've seen in the Old Testament, a passage you very well are familiar with. In Deuteronomy 6, 6 6-9, let me read this pattern. It says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So fathers, parents in the room, we do not need to be all that creative when it comes to applying these, this command to keep my words. We can do as the father is doing. We see here the father teaching his son, and he is diligent to talk about the commands of wisdom when he sits, when he walks, when he lies down, and when he rises. Taking up and talking about the commands of God, this is a regular part of his daily living, routine in his daily interactions. So let me encourage each of us to do the same, to be regular and routine in speaking about the commands of God, that we may keep the words of wisdom close. This is something we pray about as a church, that we would be regular and frequent, and you can even do that this very day after the service in talking about the passage May that be a regular practice of ours. And yet the home in particular does provide a tremendous training ground for growing in doing this. Again, fathers, parents, as you teach and train your children, you too are being taught. You too are being trained by the father. Well, no doubt the father's diligence in speaking about the commands of wisdom, they do stem from a delighting in the words of God. So a a quick comment about speaking about the things that we, about how we might delight in the words of God. Think for a moment, and I did this briefly in the illustration, but we we speak about the things that we love. We, We speak about the things that we delight in. So that may be our kids. It may be a favorite sports team. It may be your work. It may be yourself. Whatever it is that you often speak about very well holds a very prominent place in your heart and in your mind. So take stock, take inventory of what it is that you most often speak about. It will show you something of what you delight in. I wonder how often it is that you find yourself speaking about the things of God. How often do you find yourself speaking about the things of God? Let me encourage you to continue in this if you're doing this. Let me encourage you to try this if you are not. Pray that the Lord would enable you to, enable you to speak about his commands with one another. Place yourself around others who regularly speak about the things of the Lord. Perhaps you even initiate that conversation by asking the question, what is it that you are learning from the Scriptures? What is it that the Lord is teaching you about Himself recently? 
you can join with others in being a fellow learner, a fellow follower of the commands of the Father. It may be that you're here this morning and you're saying, well, I do not particularly delight in the commands and the words of the Lord. And let me, let me just start off by commending you for being here. You're sitting under the ministry of the Word to kick off the week, places yourself in a good position. That is a good start for your day and for your week ahead. So you are here. And that you would be listening and that you would continue to, to listen and even talk about the things that you hear as you go from here. It's kind of like the visual of the campfire on a cool night. You may feel cold to the words of God. You may be, it's hard to imagine right now, it's August, but cool in the night. But if you draw close to that campfire, you begin to warm. You are warmed by its flame. And each time that you place yourself close to the words of God, it's like adding a piece of kindling to that campfire. It's adding oxygen to that campfire, and it slowly starts to stoke the fire within your heart so that you have a greater desire for the word of the Lord. Just as, let, as you enjoy the warmth of that campfire on a cool night, you find delight in the warmth of the words of God. Well, back to our story. As we think about the Father speaking to the Son, we've thought about how the Father is applying this instruction. Maybe you are here this morning and you are more akin to the son in this story. We don't know that the illustration the father gives later, he's not saying that this, that's the son, but there's reason that the son needs to hear this story. And I would say that you and I need to hear this story from Proverbs 7 this morning as well. These are words that you've heard in recent weeks, and these are words that you very well are familiar with. But let us not become so familiar with the words of the Father that we are only hearers but not doers as well. That we only hear the word of God but they fall on deaf ears and we fail to heed God's word. Let that be a caution to each one of us. Well, the Father keeps going and, and, and in Looking at his example, let, let me actually mention one other place we see this pattern of passing along the teachings of, of the Father. We saw an Old Testament example in Deuteronomy 6. We see a, a New Testament of example of this from Jesus himself in the Great Commission. Christ's commission to the church in Matthew 28 follows a similar pattern. It, it's a model for ministry, if you will. Matthew 28, you know, verse 19 and 20. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. To obey, to, to keep all that I have commanded you. So we've spoken to parents. We've spoken to children in the home. But I don't want to leave anyone out. <laughs> Each one of us as disciples of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, we can observe the words of the Father, and we can help others to do the same. We can help others to observe and to obey all that the Father has commanded. If you're a member of a local church, if you're a member of Oakhurst Baptist Church, the Lord has given you a church family to help you in this, follow this pattern. So, how do we, as, as a church, embody this instruction that the Father is giving the Son? Well, we, we do make a point to gather, as I've mentioned briefly. We gather and sit under God's Word. We're coming up on the fall semester, and there's an additional opportunity with equipping hour, our adult Sunday school classes, to regularly be hearing the words of wisdom, the counsel, and the commands of the Father. In our Sunday evening gather, gathering, when, when we pray and we hear brief devotional from God's Word, again, another opportunity. During the week, many of us meet with other members of this church to discuss God's Word. So it's not just in our gathering, but also as we scatter from this place, we meet with one another so that we can 
help one another in keeping the commands of God. As you scatter to your neighborhood, exercising a Christian hospitality, a, a warmth to, to neighbor, seeking to evangelize neighbor. As we are in the workplace and we seek to demonstrate a Christ-honoring and exalting work ethic, working as unto the Lord with integrity. All these are ways that we as a church in our gathering and our, our scattering can help one another and help others to learn and to pay attention and to keep the words of the Father. Well, the Father is speaking in these first three verses, but as you scroll later in the story, he's going to give an illustration of what he's saying. Essentially, he's saying, don't just take my word for it. See for yourself. So part two of this axiom, keep her words and you will die. Keep her words and you will die. You see this in, in verses 14 to 23. I'll read the last three verses in that section, 14 to 23, picking up in verse 21, with much seductive speech, she persuades him all at once. He follows her. 23, he does not know that it will cost him his life. I do want you to notice that the seduction and the persuasion from this woman is through her words. Primarily through her words. Yes, in verse 13, she seizes him and kisses him and speaks to him with a bold face. And it's her words, ultimately, that do overpower him. So you think about the power of words. Words have always been demonstrated to be powerful. Words have intended, been intended to be powerful. Think with me for a moment in creation. Genesis 1, God speaks all things into existence by the power of his word. You and I have been made to know him through the power of his word and to be in relationship with him. We are to be influenced by his words. And that's, that's good and, and right. That is by God's design. But then as you look at the fall in Genesis 3, Satan corrupts the good intention of words. He challenges and distorts God's words. Just as we are to understand the power of words, Satan himself understands the power of words. Do you understand the power of words? Our words can be used to accomplish great good or to accomplish great evil. An example of how our words are intended to accomplish great good. I think about the example of marriage and the passage that we even read earlier today, Ephesians 5, we, we, we see the picture of marriage. I think it's no coincidence that the chapter before, Ephesians 4, is filled with words of how we are to speak. Our speech is to be used to, to build up and, and to encourage. And that can be used for tremendous good in any relationship, and then certainly as we move to Ephesians 5, in, in marriage. Our words are intended to help foster oneness and intimacy in marriage. Our words are intended to build up and encourage in our relationships with one another. Song of Solomon, who, so, uh, Solomon rather, who, who wrote this proverb, he understood the power of words. He, in Song of Solomon, he paints this, this vivid picture of, of intimacy using words. Words that he speaks to his beloved. So words, words are powerful. It's always been that, that way. And are you aware of that? Well, our words also can accomplish great evil. And certainly the adulteress understood this. Listen to what she says, starting in, in verse 14. And listen to how she persuades him. I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. First, she appeals to 
her own conscience. She has this appearance of righteousness, and now she is running to folly. There's a clear disconnect between her religious exterior living and the reality of her relationship with the Lord inside. In verse 15, she then speaks and she appeals to the fool. She appeals to his ego. I have run to meet you. She says that you are special. And he listens. And many like him have listened. As she continues, after appealing to her own conscience, his ego, she then appeals to the senses in 16 and 17, covering her couch with colored linens, perfuming her bed. Just like words can be used for good and have been distorted to be used for evil, so a good thing to be able to enjoy the sensory pleasures and even in in what's intended and reserved for the marriage relationship here being used as, as a perversion So she appeals to the senses in a corrupt manner. And then in 18 to 20, she appeals to the opportunity. Her husband is gone on a long journey. No plans for him to return soon. He's got lots of money. All this she does with her words. So again, are you and I alert? Are we aware of the power of our words for constructive good, but also for evil. We ought not to be caught off guard. There's a whole industry that understands the power of words. (laughs) As we think about temptation to adultery or sexual immorality, there's a whole industry that, that seeks that end, but through the use of words. And those words may be very explicit in picking up the the, the phone to speak with someone. They may be explicit in reading up and picking up an erotic piece of literature. But we're still in, in danger when we have those more subtle conversations. When we maybe engage in a little banter with someone who is not our spouse. This is different from conversation. This is different from appropriate relationship. This is an enjoyment of something that is not reserved for you. It can seem to be harmless, but I can assure you, and many can attest to, the danger that awaits. This little bit of banter can have a death grip on you. So friends, let us pay attention. Consider how it is you are using your phone. What type of communication are you engaged in on your phone? And consider where your eyes are turning, what it is that you are reading. As we dabble a little bit, we're in danger. To dabble is to jiggle the handle of the door that opens up to death and further destruction. I don't know about your experience, but I've not met someone who woke up one day and then just decided, today I'm going to commit adultery. Today I'm going to have an affair. Usually there are multiple concessions, multiple allowances that are made along the way. And so friends, let us not dabble with the adulteress. Let us not dabble with the foreign woman. And so all with her words, she seduces him. With smooth talk in 21, she compels him. He's lingered long enough where he he feels that he has no choice but to be a follower of her invitation. 
All at once he follows her, and he does not know that it will cost him his life. I want us to hear the warning of this passage, but I also want us to know that adultery is not inevitable. Adultery is not the only option when you are put in the path or place yourself in the path of the adulterous woman. We do have an option to choose a different conversation partner, to choose a different companion. And I think that's highlighted in axiom number two. Axiom two, if the first was an axiom kind of appealing to our ear, here, this axiom is, is speaking to our hearts. The first part of axiom two says, keep me close. Let me give it all to you. Keep me close and you will win. Keep her close and you will lose. So part one, keep me close and you will win. Verse four and five, call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman. This language is, is victory language to keep us from the forbidden woman. If the aim is to avoid adultery, these are words in which we can live by and win by. These are words that we want to hold close and take to heart. And the father is instructing the son to hold wisdom close. Get close to wisdom. Get, get really close. Wisdom is to be like a family member to you. But more than just a sibling, you are to make wisdom your spouse. Look what Solomon says there in verse 4. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. You are my sister. Now, culturally, this may sound foreign to us, but this, would have been, this language would have been familiar to Solomon and Israel at this time. At this time, a Hebrew husband might refer to his wife as his sister. So if you were with us in the Genesis series, we saw an example of this in, in Abraham. He used this language to talk about a, a close familial relationship with his wife. Now, sadly, he used it to deceive and to mislead Pharaoh, to lie in order to, to cover himself, an act of, of self-protection. But, but the dual meaning of sister was one that was understood. The reason it was deceptive is because it would have been common for a Hebrew husband to refer to his, to call his wife sister. Solomon also uses this in the Song of Solomon. Verse 4, chapter 4, verse 9, Song of Solomon 4, 9. You have captured my heart, my sister, my bride. He, uses, he references his, his beloved as sister multiple times in that passage. Now, in no way is Solomon saying he's married to his sister, but he's saying he's, he's in a close, intimate relationship with his bride. She's family, and as family, they are bound together. And in a similar way, the father is instructing the son to, to bind himself to wisdom, not just his finger, not just his heart even, but actually all of himself, his entire life is to be bound to wisdom, to be in an intimate relationship with wisdom. He is to marry wisdom. And marriage is actually a helpful picture of what the father is encouraging the son towards. Marriage is this covenant relationship, a committed relationship, and a relationship in which we are to have with wisdom. This, this relationship, marriage, this covenant, is intended for life. The father recognizes that one day he will not be with the son. But if the son is married to wisdom, the father's words will always be with him. So I hope each one of us is hearing this. We, we have ha heard fatherly wisdom from spiritual fathers who are with us, and the aim is that we would walk in their wisdom 
when they are not around, when they are no longer with us. But if we are married to wisdom, we have that partner for life. Friends, if you are a Christian this morning, theologically, you are married to Christ. You are united with him. You are one with him. He is your intimate friend. Jesus, he's the person of wisdom. Let us keep him close so that we may win. He will keep you from the adulterous woman. The warning here is one of marital adultery. Our Heavenly Father is also concerned with spiritual adultery. He has made us to be in relationship with Him, to have a covenant relationship with Him. And the reality that we see in Scripture and in our own lives is that each one of us break that covenant. Each one of us has failed in our relationship and our commitment to fidelity to Jesus. But Jesus restores that covenant on the cross. Through repentance and faith and by the cross, he has, a made, he has made a way for you and I to be married to him, to be bound to him in faith, to then have these new hearts that delight to be in his presence, to keep him close and his words close, that delight to be in relationship with him. Let me just speak to the non-Christian this morning. This passage speaks about death. It's the death of a relationship where there's great loss, and we'll consider that briefly. But apart from being united to Christ in faith, there is an eternal death that awaits you. There is eternal separation from the Father. Today is the day. Today is your opportunity to turn to Christ, to be united to him, and to keep his words and to live. One quick thought about relationship with the Lord for all believers. Again, this passage is speaking about a relationship and being faithful to a spouse One of the greatest protections against adultery is the idea of having a vibrant relationship with the Lord. When we are close to him, we have intimacy with him. That will keep us from the adulteress and will will protect us from the way of the foreign woman. Part two of the second axiom, keep her close and you will lose. Keep her close and you will lose. We see this in verses 6 to 13, as well as 24 to 27. That section ends with, Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. For many a victim she has laid low. Her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to death. And That is the testimony of the man who is victim to the adulteress. Rather than being able to tell a story of of victory, his his story is one of, of defeat and of death. You'll notice in verse 24 that the father is speaking to sons in the plural, recognizing that that the words he is sharing has application to many. As I alluded to earlier, not many of us think that we will fall victim to adultery. And yet many do. Why is this? How does this happen? Picking up a little bit earlier in the story, in verse 6, the father is speaking and he says, For at the window of my house I have looked through the lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a man lacking sense. We're told of a man who, who lacks sense. In, in layman's terms, he is stupid. He is a fool. And he lives up to this title. 
immediately. Verse 8, he is seen passing along the corner, her corner. So rather than, than turning from her ways, he is taking the road to her house. I want us to consider that while this man is passing along, there's actually nothing passive about what he is doing. He's making an active, intentional choice to be near her corner. So this is not a case of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. This is not happenstance or coincidence. Rather, this is a conscious choice. He is on foot, and he has crossed the street to meet her. You're familiar with the sign on the back of a tractor trailer. What's it say? This vehicle makes wide turns. Metaphorically, how can you and I drive the tractor trailer? I do hear yellow trucking is going out of business, so I think actually you can probably buy one. It'd be kind of fun to see some in the parking lot next week. Maybe your 16-year-old would like that as a first vehicle, tractor trailer. But really, how might we think about getting on board the tractor trailer when it comes to taking the wide turn away from the adulteress? I'll leave that as an exercise for you. You can fill that out. I'm sure you'll do a great job. But that tractor trailer, it turns wide. It, it travels the highways where there are, are many. It's easily noticed. It's not walking on foot, discreet. This fool has also gone at night for cover. Again, a demonstration that his plan is premeditated. He hopes that he will not be seen. And often our sin in private does go unseen. But just as the father in this story sees this young man, so our Father in heaven sees you and I. He always sees what is going on. Despite our best attempts to take cover, he sees. And Solomon seeing this is, and, and speaking about it to his son is actually, it's actually a kindness. So a word of application for you and I, as we observe our peers, as we observe one another. If we see something, we ought to say something. You're familiar with that as you're walking in the airport? Maybe it's, it's announced over the intercom or it's on a sign. If you see something unusual, say something. Why? For the safety and the well-being of many. Similarly, if we see something, it is a kindness for us to say something. It may be uncomfortable. It may be easier to remain silent. But it is a demonstration of wisdom and kindness to speak up. Friends, this fool went at night. He went near her corner. Let us not pass near the corner of the adulteress. How might we do that? Well, I think we do well to know where we're especially vulnerable, where we might be susceptible to weakness. We may need to be proactive. Just as he was passing along, he was actually being proactive in carrying out his plan. Let's actively carry out another plan. That may be filling your Friday night in the company of other members of this church. It may be humbly placing a filter on a phone or another device. It may be inconveniencing yourself to access the computer in the common spaces. But we do not want to pass near her. But the fool does. When he passes near her, there's no surprise that he meets her. Behold, the woman meets him, and she is loud. 
at every corner, she, she lies and waits. We should not be surprised when we encounter the adulteress. Certainly, we are not to go near her, but let us not be surprised if she comes near us. She is at every corner. She is only a click away. So let us not turn to her. She can be found on the street. She can be found online. But either way, do not pause to hear her. The passage tells us she is loud. Wisdom is loud too. Wisdom is loud. Proverbs 1, 20 to 21. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. Wisdom is not silent. When folly is loud, the forbidden woman is loud. Wisdom has much to say. I think of even the woman seizing the young man. Scripture speaks very realistically to that reality. Bringing us back to Genesis again with Joseph. Joseph was in the company of Potiphar's wife. She seized him. She even was able to promise cover. Virtually guarantee that this Indecency would not be found out. But Joseph was prepared. He was not the man who lacked sense, but he was the man who demonstrated wisdom. And in that moment, wisdom was to run, not to remain and and see how much he could endure or how strong he might be, but actually to run. So are you and I prepared for when we encounter the adulteress, whether of our own choosing or of hers? Verse 25, all at once. He follows her. 26, for many a victim she has laid low. Slain are a mighty throng. Her way is to death. Proximity to the adulterous woman is kind of like proximity to that black hole. There's a gravitational pull. As you come within proximity to that black hole, it sucks you in and you're gone. It destroys you. This is the testimony we're told in this passage of many. Her house is the way to death. If that's you this morning, there's opportunity to confess sin. If you are in the midst of an adulterous affair, let me encourage you to come and confess that sin. You can speak to a pastor. You can speak to another member of this church. We love you. We will help you. You've heard this language. We will not hammer you, but we will seek to help you. There is opportunity to confess confess your sin. And if you delay even longer, it will bring about even further destruction. David knew the consequence of adultery, and yet he turned to the Lord. He still experienced consequences of his sin, but he experienced restoration in his relationship with God. Solomon, who pens this proverb, also would have been able to speak of of the painful consequences of adultery, infidelity. But let me tell you, it will only get worse. The harm is all the greater. It will be found out. You do not need me to elaborate on the impacts of adultery, but they are immense. They destroy families, marriages. They cost much materially, financially. There's a loss of reputation, sometimes even the ability to provide. 
much is lost for a moment of pleasure. So let that be a warning for me, for you. For some of us, adultery is part of your story. You have confessed that sin. You have brought that to light. Some of us may have grounds for divorce. That may even be the appropriate way in which you pursue peace in the midst of that broken marriage. But some of us will choose to remain. And if we remain, that will present an opportunity to show a profound picture of the gospel. God reconciles us to himself through the cross when we repent and believe. You know, the story of reconciliation after adultery is not often told. There are different reasons for that. Um, Maybe shame, it may be an effort to... um, guard the reputation of another. There can be any number of reasons in which we don't hear stories of reconciliation. But those stories are out there, and that story, if you are in Christ, is yours and is mine. Ours is a story of reconciliation in the midst of spiritual adultery. And then Jesus has these things to say to you. Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for you who are in Christ. Behold, in 1 Corinthians, you are a new creation. Behold, I am making all things new. Friends, that is your and my story, one of reconciliation even after spiritual adultery. So let those be words that we leave with. Let those be words of hope that we hear as we wrap up. Keep these words of the Father close. Be one who speaks these words of the Father to one another so that we might know victory in life and in the life to come. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that we would be helped by your word this morning. The gravity of a passage like this, may we be warned by it, but may we not live in an undue fear. May we turn to you for help. Would you guard us and keep us as we go from here, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.